We have uh, been in a, a series uh, here in Matthew chapter 6. We have been tearing apart the Lord's Prayer. And um, this has been an extremely difficult week uh, for me because as many of you know that have uh, been with me for a while, um, it's, um, I, I really <laughs> many times find it very difficult to just be a preacher. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't. I don't think we want to just come and we kind of study this this text and say, "Great, this is just something now I get to say to these people." Um, uh, where I, I, the way I approach the scripture during the week is, "Lord, how how are you going to wreck my life about what you have to say to me in the scripture? What do you have to say to me?" And uh, to to let you know, um, it, it's just deeply convicting to tell you the truth, and so. As I hope that you get from me today when I speak with you that um, I definitely wouldn't be speaking as a person who's like, you know, speaking on high and I've got it all together as much as I'm, I'm positive that I struggle just like you in this in this, this, this specific, this piece of scripture that we're going to deal with today. Michael did a great job last week of talking about what it means to be able to talk about your kingdom come, this prayer. Let's, let's kind of talk about, you know, let's uh, go up to the top here where it says, Our Father, see that? In, in Matthew 6, we're starting there at verse 9. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then your kingdom come. And this is what we're going to talk about today. That's what Michael did last week. talked about the kingdom. Beautiful job. Really thank, thank the Lord for that, brother. Your will be done. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wow, that's pretty powerful if you think about that. And when we pray this, that kind of prayer, that your will would be done in our lives. After all, I don't know if you're like me, but this is kind of how I feel a lot of times in my life during the week. I feel like this kind of this amoeba of my will. That's the most representative amoeba. Okay, come on. Be a little bit more gracious with me. And then this is supposed to represent, obviously, thy will, the Lord's will. And there's this unbelievable friction that seems to take place in my life between those two things that's horrible. Do you get it? I mean, does it ever feel like that way to you? You just kind of wonder, wow, my will versus the Lord's will. And what is the Lord's will, many of us ask. And what does that all mean? And so we're kind of in this, in this thought of what it really means to when we would say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the, the, the assumption there is that the will of the Lord in heaven amongst the heavenly beings is all in sync. It all works like the day when we get to heaven, you're gonna, it's going to be unbelievable to, to know and to see and to feel what's, what's, what's happening in heaven because... It, it's all in the Lord's will. It's all the same music, and people are in sync with the Father. And it's a beautiful thing. But the picture there is, is that, they, that the Lord still, even on this earth, this sinful place that we're in, still wants some sync <laughs> down here on earth. So as it is in heaven, it is on earth. Your will be done on earth. And I was praying a lot about that this week, and I, I really wanted to ask myself the question. I only came up with one answer on it. But what, what am I doing? What am I doing when I'm praying this? Is what the, is what the question is. What, what am I doing when I'm praying, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? And here's what I want to talk to you about today. And try to follow this. Because what I'm praying, it's just one thing. I am praying the great reversal on my earthly life. Let me say it again. Now you'll explain, it'll be understood as I get into the material. I am praying the great reversal. Okay? On my earthly life. George Barnum, who leads a research group that studies the church, says this. To increasing millions of Americans, God exists for the pleasure of mankind. He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and our benefit. We live by the notion that true power is assessed not by looking upwards at the Lord, but by turning inwards on ourselves. In short, the spirituality of America is, is Christian in name only. We desire experience more than knowledge, and we prefer choices to absolutes, and we embrace preferences rather than truths, which is exactly this city, by the way. It disturbs me, as a side note, to talk with many of you who feel that for a billion and one reasons you've come to the place in your life where you don't have to have any absolutes in your life. And it's more disturbing when I begin to press in with some of you in your heart about biblical truth, and many of you put up your hand to resist it because you can't understand that there could possibly be ultimate truth. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. Maybe it is you don't want to understand that there is absolute truth. And it's a dangerous place to be, my friends, especially my young brothers and sisters, who are right now trying to develop a real, what, Christology? A sense of who Christ is and what this all means? I'm concerned about it. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths, and we seek comfort rather than growth. Faith must come on our own terms or we reject it. And then this is the most indicting, and I, I'm, I'm saddened, and, and it hurts me as much as it hurts you, and it says this. We have enthroned ourselves as the final arbiters of righteousness. The ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. My wife's brother used to play a game, these little creatures called Masters of the Universe. You ever seen this? I think it was a movie. I think that in many ways we play that game. I think that in many ways we're the characters in that story. And we actually believe that we're the masters of our own universe. Many of us have what many theologians would call a very Pelagian view of self and our life. We look and we say we're good enough. We're smart enough. Kind of like the Stuart Smalling theology of Saturday Night Live. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You know that there's many people in their lives that that is their theological mantra? They've lived their whole lives for that. I want to make sure that you hear from me today in kind love, and I do love you, even though sometimes you may think I don't. 
But the whole biblical picture is not ever about us being good enough. We can never be good enough. The beauty of the biblical picture, in fact, is that we're not good enough, but Christ is good enough. That God sent His Son for us. That we didn't have a chance without Him sending His Son. Well, if is Barna right when he says that we have enthroned ourselves as the final arbiter of righteousness, the ultimate ruler of our own experience? Is he actually right? Can we actually come to the place where God exists solely for my pleasure? Think about it in your life. Don't think about it for anybody else. Think about it. Think about that question. If I actually come to the place in my life where God exists for my pleasure, where true power and healing come from somewhere within my own mind and body, do I actually think that? Do I think that true power and healing is going to come within something I understand? Is true power and healing going to come from if I understand exactly the pathology of how my mom and dad treated me as a young child or my stepfather and stepmother? Am I going to, am I going to get healing if I understand that? Talk to you a lot about that. Is it true that I've enthroned myself as the final arbiter of righteousness or that I am the ultimate ruler of my own destiny? How could that be true? I think it's true because I think we swallowed the wrong pills. I think it's true because I think we swallowed the wrong pills. There's a tremendous movie that won five Academy Awards. It's back in 1975. So all of you were even born. I was 15. And it was called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson plays a character that is a habitual criminal who's in, uh, been in, basically gone to, should have gone to jail for statutory rape, but they sent him to an insane asylum, they sent him to a mental institution. And he is confronted by a nurse there called Nurse Ratchet. And Nurse Ratchet runs this insane asylum. And what she does is she kind of runs this, this place with the kind of three real major tools. And the tools that she uses are this mindless, numbing daily routine that this music plays in the background and people are kind of wandering around. And then she uses that everybody gets into group therapy. And what she uses in group therapy is she uses the thing that the world uses so well against all of us, shame. She shames everybody in front of everybody else, maybe thinking that her shame of them is going to change their behavior. And then, of course, the final thing that she uses to, to in some way moderate or change behavior is, of course, pills. Y'all follow with me. I'm told, if Barnett's right, I'm told that independence and individuality are the gospel. I must maintain it at all costs. And if that's the truth, then what I'm doing in my life is I'm just like Mr. Nicholson in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Nurse Ratchet is the world. And I am constantly swallowing the wrong pills. And the world has anesthetized me. And it is completely and utterly insane for a gospel of individualism and trust your feelings 
for me to even try to comprehend it, but I want you to know, we do it. We swallow the pills every day. In many ways, our Savior is a nurse ratchet character. We've fallen into understanding that our healing and our health is going to be group therapy or in some way this cathartic understanding of getting out our feelings. And meanwhile, the Bible talks about the Lord, the King, my God. Have we swallowed the pills of the world? Pills that would say, be an individual, be yourself, trust your feelings, you are unique. Discover your abilities. Be all you can be, the old army slogan. Is that what we're at? I think it's where I'm at, anyway. And so it goes. For Joel, a dramatic story unfolds in my life where I am kind of this cultural pill-popping addict to my own individualism. Where God serves me and I'm at the center and I am the star and I am the focus and the camera is on me. It hurts, doesn't it? Because it's really real for all of us. If you're to really be honest with yourself, even as evangelical believers, many of us are pill-popping addicts of individualism. God forbid that anybody would ever, ever step into our lives and to tell us any different. There's many reasons why we're at where we're at today. I mean, in America, you need to know that. America each day wants us to swallow those pills. I want you to be real careful of that. And as much as I would like to imagine otherwise about this pills of individualism, I've got a confession to make for you. And you know that I often do this as I preach with you. i got to confess to you this. I love it. I love my individualism. I love being my most familiar topic. I love talking about me. I love it when people try to figure me out. Oh, so great. Just sitting down in a restaurant, somebody would actually look at me and say, something about you. Oh, let's. <laughs> Don't be short. I love it when I get the glory and I love it when I win. I love to tell you about my food preferences and my drink preferences and my hobbies. Oh my gosh, the sickening story can go on and on and on and on, can it? Don't you, have you ever just come to a place, we do it really well with others, we don't do it well with ourselves. You ever walk away from conversations and go, I'm so, I'm like, I'm so over that dude. Right? I'm so over her. Have you ever done it? They're so Completely, absolutely, top of the liquid, filled with themselves. Just drinking themselves as they're talking with me. You ever met those people? Huh? Uh, yes, you have. You've met them every day. In fact, tomorrow morning you'll meet them again. They're you in the mirror. They're me. 
But let's get back to the prayer. But that all plays into what I want to share with you today. When we are praying this prayer, thy will or your, your will be done, we are praying here, and this is why I want to set this talk up. We're praying the great reversal on and over our entire earthly lives. And the reversal is what? It becomes not about me, because when I'm praying, thy will be done, your will be done, I'm saying it's not me, it's you. And so I'm reversing the order of how I normally look in the mirror every day. So the mirror is usually this, and I know you've heard this, this, this sermon in a billion different ways. Great, let's hear it again, because we don't get the message. We're reversing it. We're reversing the order. We are asking, now listen to this statement because it's an important one. It's going to tie in the scripture I'm going to take you to. We're reversing the order. We're taking us, we're reversing it, and we're asking, we're asking for a painful turnaround. A painful turnaround. And it is painful. It is painful when we dethrone ourselves or actually have to dethrone ourselves in life. It's very painful. It's almost like many of us need to mourn the fact that <laughs> we're selfish. That things have changed. I was talking with a young lady this last week who said this. I've got a baby at home, and in reality, if I were to be really honest about my life, I hate my life. And I said, good for you. That is great. I love hearing that. I'd much rather hear that than everything. You're great. I hate my life. Why do you hate your life? And the fact, what we came down to is this. I can't accept the fact that it's not, it's, it, that my life is gone. The previous life that I had was gone. It's, it's not even existed. All of my life now is about taking care of feeding this child, changing poopy diapers and everything else. I thought, that's exactly right. And that's exactly the call that the Lord has on our lives. Read through the New Testament. Look at the abandoning nature that Jesus calls his people to. You're leaving all that. The rich young ruler, his, the disciples. You're leaving all that. And it is painful. But we're reversing the order. We are saying, actually, when we're saying, thy will be done, we're saying, it's not about me. It's not about myself. It's not about my will. It's about you, Lord. It's about you. It's about your will. Your will be done. And I know what I'm saying to you today is very, very, very painful and difficult, especially as it works out into our pragmatic reality of where we live even tomorrow. I know that. I'm right with you. I want you to know that a dramatic story is being told, my friends. It's a story of promise and fulfillment. With Christ at the center, its focus is on God and His actions. God is not a supporting actor in our drama. It is the other way around. God does not exist to make sure that we are happy and fulfilled. We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes, I'm a good Presbyterian. God is not a facilitator of our life transformation projects. He is not a life coach. This is actually book, uh, some quotes from one of my favorite authors, by the name of Michael Horton, who wrote The Gospel Driven Life. 
He is not the janitor that cleans up our messes. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is king. He is ruler. He is creator. He is lawgiver. He is judge. He is covenant Lord. He is our redeemer who has walked into the insane asylum of our lives and rescued us from all of our pill-popping ways. And many of us today, and many of us this next week, need that Redeemer to walk into that asylum on Wednesday and do it again. Jesus, pray, don't turn there. I want you to hear how Jesus prayed what I call the great reversal. I'm going, to, I'm going to really encourage you this week to pray the great reversal. I'm going to tell you kind of how to do it because he teaches us how to do it. And he teaches it here in Luke chapter 22. I want you to just listen. But you can go back to it today because it's Luke 22. And it starts at verse 39. And listen to this now because it really ties in with what we're talking about with the Lord's Prayer. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. By the way, do we do that? I don't do that enough. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. That was probably good because they all fell asleep. He probably threw stones at them to wake them up, you know. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. This is before his crucifixion. Listen to what he says. It's beautiful. And it helps us. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What was the cup he was talking about? What? What? His death, right? So, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And here's the word. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, what does Jesus teach us about prayer there? Well, it's beautiful because it shows that we can obviously come to the Father. And we can share our hurts and our struggles and our pain. And some people would even believe, wow, could Jesus actually pray this prayer? I thought he was sinless. I thought he was perfect. He was perfect. He was sinless. But the Father obviously wanted to hear the heart of his Son. And he wants to hear, hear your heart too, by the way, young daughter, young son. Do you think that there's anything involved in your life that you have done or are doing now that is too shameful to bring to the Lord, to your Father? Wouldn't this have been terribly shameful for Jesus? To actually have gone his whole life where he knew he was going to have to do this and actually get to the front porch of the cross and actually say to the Lord, hey, do I really have to do this? Father, remove the cup from me. The problem is with many of us, look what it says there. It says, or listen to what it says. It says, Father, Father, if you are willing, important, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Most of us 
in our prayers, what we do is we stop at, Father, remove this cup from me. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you follow what I just said? We stop at the prayer. We say, Father, remove this cup from me. Make my wife leave the house. She makes me miserable. Make my husband leave the house or clean the kitchen. Because he is a big old giant cup of suffering to me. Remove it, Lord. <laughs> and then we stop. You get no, no follow because it's so, it's so exactly my life. We say it and then we stop because the key, the key and operative word is nevertheless. What's nevertheless? In spite of. No, but. Oh, nevertheless, then there's all of a sudden, here comes the trump card. Here comes the ace on the deck. Not my will, not my, okay, I, I want my husband gone. I don't like him, he's stinky. Your will. Not nevertheless, okay. Kind of this, I'm getting my, okay, I want to get my head around this. Nevertheless, not my will. Or your will. Are you, are you actually willing, are we, I was thinking about this, do, are we willing people to even say nevertheless? I don't want to say nevertheless. Why don't I want to say nevertheless? Because I want to, I don't like stuff. I want to do my own thing. Are you like me? No? That's a dangerous word. It means in spite of all that, even so. Are you kidding me? That's a horrific word to use. Because let me tell you what it means, and I'm closing it up here. It means this. Nevertheless means, it means that I'm dethroning my will and myself. You hear what I said, young friend? I'm dethroning my will and myself. When I say this, when I pray this prayer. It means that I have to trust someone other than me. It means that I don't understand and probably won't understand what's going to happen in my future and I'm comfortable with it. It means that I am abandoning my agenda for my entire life. It means that I'm giving it up. And it also certainly means the word that none of us like to talk about. It means Many of you think, in case of Jesus, by the way, here, for him to say, remove the cup from me, it meant excruciating pain for Jesus because the very thing that Jesus wanted, the removal of the cup, he didn't get. In fact, what he had to do was drink the cup. Get that? So the very thing that he didn't want is the very thing that God wanted for him. That's painful, isn't it? Many of us don't think like this. We think that obeying God would mean kind of green pastures, beautiful flowers, ruby red slippers. But many times obeying God will take us to painful places like black hilltops where crosses are. So if we were to try it and we would talk, we'd say, Lord, 
remove the cup of suffering from my life, remove my singleness and my marriage problems, my financial problems. Remove it. Nevertheless, not my will to yours. Father, all I want to do is run away from my miserable life. I hate myself. I'm in shame. I feel like a failure every day. Everything I touch turns to crap. I want to run. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Be done. Be done. The work of God. Father, I struggle with wealth because I want to be wealthy and I'm a greedy, greedy person. Nevertheless, Father, I want to passionately obey the lusts of my flesh. Spend some time before the throne, pray this prayer, and then we'll close. 